Can I survive with a mission, passion-based business? Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Hey, welcome in. We've got some great questions today. As always, what do you think? A whole lot of you have business ideas that are really ministry-oriented, service-oriented. Golly, I commend that. I love that. I hope you never do anything else but that. Hey, we're going to talk about that. Here's some more questions we've got lined up for today's episode. Should I wait until I'm out of debt before investing in starting a business? Should I get liability insurance if a book I write is about a well-known name? We're seeing a lot of that. Which personality types match best in a marital relationship? Okay, how can I negotiate a higher salary than what I was offered? Well, we've got those and more. Got some good news. Got some interesting stats about the current unemployment situation. We're we'll talking about that. Got some examples of people in the 40 Days Eagles community who are doing some cool things. Well, here's our quotation for today. It addresses one of the things I just mentioned. It comes from Leo Tolstoy, who said, What counts in making a happy marriage is not so much how compatible you are, but how you deal with incompatibility. All right. So there's, we set the stage for the things we're going to be talking about today. Our business partner today, we're proud to announce is FreshBooks. You hear me talk about them frequently. They've been a longtime sponsor of this show. Love what they do. Love what they do to make it easy for people in business or just individuals Keep the record straight so you don't get in trouble with the IRS. Yep, been there, done that. Don't want to do that anymore. So this helps me stay out of trouble. But you remember how it was. You know, you may have a little business that you started. It's tough to make everything work. And one of the biggest things I was asked just this week, what are the biggest two reasons small businesses fail? And I said, number one is not having good financial controls, not knowing what your expenses are, what your income is not knowing realistically what kind of money you're making. Number two is not having the ability to sell. You've got to have the ability to sell. If you're going to be do anything for yourself, any kind of a service, if you're going to have a nonprofit, doesn't matter. You're going to have to have the ability to sell. Well, FreshBooks makes it easy for you to keep track of what you're doing. You can produce those professional looking invoices in a really short amount of time, like 30 seconds, get paid instantly when you send them out. I mean, it's a great way to do it. So check it out. Go to freshbooks.com slash 48 days and our 48 days in the how did you hear about a section. Keep yourself straight in that part of your business. Well, here's some good news. Now I get every month, I get the, from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, I get the unemployment situation summary is what it's called. So it's always really interesting to look at this. Now these are statisticians who are trying to make sense of what we're doing out here in the real world. And there's a lot of things that slip between the cracks that are never appear on their radar. As an example, what they show as unemployed people, a lot of those people they don't have a traditional job, but they aren't even looking for a traditional job. They've just moved on to something else that keeps them in a driver's seat where they aren't as vulnerable 
anymore. So the stats are astounding. I mean, the unemployment rate remained in May at 3.6%. Now, you've heard me talk about that. Anytime it's under 5%, it's critically low for companies. It's what we consider to be unhealthy in that it is so low, companies can't find the workers they need. Anytime it's under 5%, it's a 3.6. Now, in some places, like here in Williamson County, where I live, just south of Nashville, it's 2.2, which is even lower than that. So they show the usual categories, men, women, blacks, teenagers, Asians, Hispanics, and all that, that's the stats about who's, who's unemployed. But here's one stat that I always look at because it just kind of blows my mind the way they categorize this. And that is the number of discouraged workers. They say, this is the Bureau of Labor Statistics, among the marginally attached, there were 338,000 discouraged workers in May. Now, discouraged workers, their definition are persons not currently looking for work because they believe no jobs are available for them. That's it. So do you believe there are 338,000 people in our country who fall in that category? They're not even looking for work because they don't think jobs are available for them. When we have 3.6% unemployment, meaning you can't walk down any street in America without seeing signs, we're hiring, we're hiring. Please come in. If you're 16 and you breathe, you know, we want to talk to you. I mean, the signs are desperate. And and a lot of times, I mean, these days, I mean, even you walk into a nice restaurant and they say, well, you know, we're going to have a 20 minute wait and you look around and half the tables are empty. It's like, what's up with that? Well, we're not seating people because we can't get workers to work. I mean, that's a very common malady. Well, just frame it for what you want. If you're looking for something, If you really want a traditional job, my goodness, you are in the driver's seat. You ought to be able to walk out, walk into places and have three job offers before the sun goes down today. If you want a more professional position, you're sending out resumes. Sure, go through the process. You know, identify 30 to 40 companies. You don't have to wait until they're advertising even. Just identify companies you know you'd like to work for. You send them information. I mean, that's how we find jobs in what we call the hidden job market ones that are never advertised. There are a lot of companies who would be thrilled to talk to you and they're not advertising, but certainly they have need of somebody and they, uh, you know, wouldn't love to have an interview with you. So be reaching out. Well, let's go on to some other good news. Here's a piece I found pretty interesting. I'll tell you why at the end, you'll understand. Scientists found flute music that helps to build the brains of premature babies. Now, this is a new study out of Switzerland. It shows that music can do more than just soothe the senses. They're showing that music that's specially orchestrated for the recipient can help boost the neurodevelopment of prematurely born babies. Now, every country has a lot of premature born babies. There's no question about that. A lot of them come in, you know, before that 32nd week of pregnancy. So a lot of children fall in that category. Now, think about this. They are then put into neonatal care, typically, where, think about the environment. There are doors slamming, there's people walking in and out, there's uh, things being moved around and all of that. It's usually not a real pleasant sound environment. And in premature babies, hearing is one of the first senses that is more developed. So they're finding that they can produce music 
specifically for these babies that helps them with their positive brain development. Now this has been going on. They now have some kids that were, that are six years old where they did this. So there's now they got some pretty good longitudinal studies where they can see what's happening here. But I love this kind of thing. Now here's why I love this kind of thing. Now you can check it out if you're interested in that, but this is just an example of the kind of work that some of you could be doing. See, what I just described here doesn't require massive amounts of capital. It's just an idea that somebody tested, shows results, and all of a sudden, it's exploding all over the world. I love that kind of thing. And you can, you know, a lot of you have the capability. Now, here's the deal. You know, Brian Tracy, one of the old trainers whose material I listened to over and over and over again when I was a young guy just starting out as an entrepreneur, I mean, his... um his audio program, uh, Secrets of Getting Rich in America, I probably listened to that 20, 22 times through all the thing. Back then it was cassettes, but that's the kind of information I listened to. Well, Brian says that most of us have three or four ideas a year that would make us millionaires if we did something with them. Now, you know the routine. You go to a party and somebody says, oh, I got this great idea. You know, I got a million dollar idea. Well, it's not a million dollar idea unless you do something with it. Having an idea is worth zero. You can have the greatest, you can have the next, you know, Apple computer idea and it doesn't make you a dime unless you do something with it. So the, the key is not in having the idea, but in doing the implementation. That's why a lot of times somebody sees something comes out. Oh, gee, I thought of that five years ago. Well, thinking about it didn't do anything, did it? You need to act on it. It's the person who act on it, even if they weren't the one who had the original idea. That's where money is generated. Now, that being said, here's an example. We have every Tuesday, we have our Coaching Mastery Zoom call. So anybody in the Coaching Mastery program can jump on and we talk about ideas. Well, this week, we were talking about an idea and Christy Hertzler, who's in that Coaching Mastery program, heard something mentioned and boom, she acted on it. I think it was Ashley who mentioned my daughter, Ashley, who mentioned that she saw somewhere a poster that said 20%. Oh, oh, I know what it was. We were talking about mindset, the importance of mindset, both from being a coach and from identifying prospects who are good candidates to be coached. Mindset is a critical kind of concept. Well, Ashley said she saw somewhere written 20% fitness, 80% nutrition, 100% mindset. Now, here's what happened. This is an hour-long call that we had. I have no idea, no recollection of where we were in that call. But before we ended the call, Christy said, hey, I just created a shirt with that on it that I already put up in Amazon Merch. It's available for sale. Now, this is before you talk about taking action. I mean, what a cool thing to take action on an idea. So she has a shirt and I'll put the link to it on Amazon merch for Christy Hertzler's shirt, where it says 20% fitness, 80% nutrition, 100% mindset. Boom. Love that. Taking action on an idea. Again, a lot of you are sitting right on top of an idea. You just need to, to implement it. Now, here's a question that was, is kind of a core that I want to unpack in multiple ways comes from James and he has some really good questions in here that relate to, again, what a lot of us are doing. 
And certainly take, taking from what we just shared there that Christy did, this idea of taking action on something that's a good idea. Now, he his lead-in subject was aspiring mission-based entrepreneur with low funds. Now, how many of you can raise your hand in that idea? You've got a mission-based idea, but you have low funds. Well, let's unpack this a little bit. Dan, my name is James. I've been listening to your podcast for about a year. I've been slowly making my way through your your book. I worked as a broadcast meteorologist for two and a half years, was let go from my last station in 2017. I've worked five different customer service-oriented jobs since then while going to graduate school for geographic information science. Since I've been listening to your podcast, reading your book, I've been brainstorming ideas to start my own business related to meteorology and or geographic information science. However, for 13 years now, I've had a passion for youth ministry-oriented work. While I was a broadcast meteorologist, the most enjoyable aspect of my job was visiting schools, speaking to students, talking about weather safety, inspiring them to do their best in school, overcoming personal challenges, helping them realize they have a purpose and they can make a difference in their world. I love connecting with young people, hearing their aspirations. My most memorable school visit was speaking on the aforementioned topics and then afterward having a break dance contest with some of the students. Being a youth motivational speaker would be wonderful. I have so many more visions and ideas, and he goes on there. Current income, uh, James says, I'm currently working as a pizza place, as a de- at a pizza place as a delivery driver. All right. And donating plasma for income while paying down debt. Ouch. Wow. Tough way to make income. So his questions are these, and these really to a whole lot of thoughts that you listening have as well. A, what are your thoughts on my mission-based, passion-based business ideas? B, what are some reasonable goals I can set now? C, should I wait until I'm out of debt before investing and starting a business? Boom. James, man, you laid out uh, what could be a doctoral thesis here in answering these questions. So I'm going to take a couple minutes and just uh, lay out some guidelines for you. What are your thoughts on my mission-based, passion-based business idea? Here's my thoughts. Any business. Let me just stop right there. Any business you consider should be a mission-based, passion-based business. I mean, I would cringe at you doing anything that didn't have those components in it. Now, we know if you start a business and it's only for the money, Eh, you know, you can justify that for a while, but you're probably not going to be very interested in continuing it. You'll experience burnout. The only business that's really successful is one that does have the combination mission-based, passion-based. Wow. That's a critical component and part of that three-legged stool that I talk about so often, where it needs to blend your passion, your talent, and money. Those are the three legs of the stool. Now, what I describe my business as is not only for profit. <laughs> so is it is it a nonprofit? My gosh, no. I mean, by definition, that's the stupidest term I've ever heard. Nonprofit, if something is nonprofit, it's not going to survive. There has to be some way to make it profitable. I mean, I wish we would do away with the term. And more and more people are doing away with the term. They're moving into things like social entrepreneurship, ethical capitalism, 
B corporations. I mean, these are all things that describe businesses that want to do good in the world, but they don't identify themselves as nonprofits. Kind of an old term. So here's what we do at 48 Days. Now, you tell me if we're mission-based or we're profit-based. We help high-potential individuals understand and apply their unique and most powerful talents and passions so they can make a larger impact, leave a legacy, and thrive financially. And we do that in 48 Days. Now, that's our, that's our mission, what we do here. And in doing so, it fulfills you know, my mission, my calling, my purpose, my destiny. I mean, those are the things that are in place. Now, when you describe what you are doing, you, you like to go into schools and encourage the kids, you know, and play with them and talk to them about the weather and about finding their purpose. I would not encourage you to try to make that work as a source of income. That's pretty tough. I mean, that being your target audience, to go in and, you know, how are you going to get money from a fifth grader, you know, that makes it worthwhile your time to go to and do that. However, I want to add a but here. There's a caveat. Take your seed of an idea and now let's look at a couple of ways you can unpack that so it does make you money. Now, several years ago, I worked with a young gentleman here in Nashville. His name was Charlie. He was a meteorologist, so he was doing what you're doing. He really had a passion for just teaching people about how to prepare for storms, tornadoes coming through, you know, how to understand the weather changes and all that. And he wanted to do seminars. And I said, well, you know, I think it's going to be tough to charge for that information when people are used to getting all that information for free. I mean, we really are spoiled in that. I mean, when are you going to pay for a weather forecast or to know what to do to prepare for a storm? We expect that to be free. But I said, here's what I think you can do. Why don't you go to businesses that would like to have exposure to the specific audience you're speaking to when you get people together? And he's like, what do you mean? I said, well, go to a tornado shelter provider, go to state farm insurance, you know, go to the Chevy truck dealer. Uh, you know, we can go on and on with things you could help people you know, know how to, even things like uh, knowing how to get from the mall to your car safely if there's bad weather predicted, and those kind of things. So anyway, that's what he did. So his first seminar, he had 141 people in a church. Church allowed him to use their facility because they thought it was a good community service and would bring people in. He was a well-known well, you know, some, somewhat well-known celebrity in the area. So his name recognition alone brought 141 people. They paid nothing. He poured his heart out to them. But he had $2,500 in his pocket that was paid to him by people who wanted exposure to that audience, exactly the people that I talked about. He went to 15 businesses and 12 of them, wrote a check to him on the spot and said they'd participate in any seminar that he did anywhere. That's what he did. So there, there's one example of something you could do, but you got to create a plan. You can't just have a heart for ministry and hope that God's going to dump money in your bank account. Create a clear plan. So that would be one example. Another thing you say you'd really like to be a motivational youth speaker. Has that ever been done before? Yes, it certainly has. I mean, one of the people in our 48 days community, Kent Julian, I mean, he was a youth pastor. 
he was uh, actually head of uh, the youth pastoring program for a denomination. And um, so he was doing well in that space. But he said, man, I want to do better. I want to have a bigger impact. I want to make more money, provide for my family better, bless others. So he became a youth speaker. He's very focused on who he speaks to. He knows who the decision makers are to bring speakers in to high schools and universities. He's been doing this for a long time now. When he goes out to speak, he typically is going to speak four or five times in a week. So he books those close together time-wise and geographically. He does extremely well. His income is probably five times what he was making as a youth pastor. And he also teaches other people how to speak. You know, So if you go to his website, it's paidtospeakconference.com. I went there a little bit ago, and it was interesting because right on the in the scrolling pictures, um, there's me sitting in a seat because certainly I've been to his conference multiple times, love participating in it, helping him get the message out. Yeah, you can get paid to speak. So again, Kent's site is paidtospeakconference.com. I'll put that in the show notes, but it's easy to find. So there are a lot of ways to take worthy mission-focused ideas and make them work. When my son Jared was in Africa, he is drawn to what the Bible calls the least of these, people who are the most marginalized. So Jared wanted to help these poor ladies who were widows and prostitutes. Now, the reason those are connected is there were a whole lot of widows whose husbands were killed in a genocide in Rwanda. He was living in Kigali, Rwanda. That's where he landed. That's where he wanted to be. He saw his mission opportunity right there to help these poor, disadvantaged women. And of course, you know, they resort to prostitution, not as a sexual kind of thing, but as a, a way to feed their kids one more day. And he thought, I want to help these. So how are you going to make that work? Well, his initial idea was, well, I'll come back to where mom and dad live, Williamson County, Tennessee, the wealthiest county in Tennessee, seventh wealthiest, highest per capita income county in the nation. I'll come back there and just share my idea and get money from all those rich people. I said, man, that's the stupidest idea. Don't do that. There's there's so much competition. We have over 200 worthy nonprofit organizations based here in Williamson County. You're going to get lost in the crowd. You got to be more creative than that, dude. So we went back to the table experimented with a couple of ideas and came up with the idea that the organization was called Kaza. And he put that together where those women would make necklaces. Now here's how this went. This is not just some little cheap bead making kind of thing. Yes, they took paper that they could get for free in the city that was just being thrown away or burned and they would roll it and create this beautiful jewelry. So these necklaces, bracelets, but he had student interns from the Rhode Island School of Design come over there as part of their training and design these gorgeous designs. The ladies would then make those. So the jewelry was sold not as just, well, here's a little bead thing for $4. No, they were sold for three and $400 at high fashion shows, runway shows that were done in Chicago, LA, Miami, here in Nashville, places like that the money generated from selling the products paid those women. They could make essentially the same income as a school teacher in that country. So we created a model, Jared created a model for providing income 
for those women, even though his original purpose was very much mission-oriented. I structured that so he didn't need any money out of it. He was doing other things. He's a branding guy. But that's how that organization operated. A lot of you listening, uh, we sent out those necklaces as gifts to everybody in the Eagles community last Christmas time. Two of those necklaces. So a lot of you had those know exactly what I'm talking about when I talk about that organization. Now, here's another example. Joanna and I just this last week visited a place here in Franklin called the Refuge Center. It's this marvelous organization that provides counseling for people in this arena. Now, I already said, you know, this is a, a high-income county, but there are people struggling. There's no question about it. They don't turn anybody away. They operate in a sliding scale. So they have, it's, it's this really large counseling program. And what they do in terms of their income they receive 80% of their required budget from the sliding scale fees that they get from the people that they serve. So 20% does come from fundraising. They do some really innovative things. And uh, Joanna and I are going to participate in something really cool as it relates to the new facility that they're getting ready to build. So they've been extremely successful in this community doing mission-based, passion-based, service-oriented work, but creating an economic model to make it work. Now, last week, I used a quotation from Jim Cockrum, where he said, being profitable means I get to continue serving people without asking for donations. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, don't be embarrassed or apologize for charging people who you're serving. But in doing that, you have to have a reasonable audience, and it can't be fourth and fifth graders necessarily. Now, here's the deal, James. I'm going to wrap this up. If you're working at a pizza place as a delivery driver, then I want you to be the best and brightest driver they've ever experienced. I mean, while your customers and your employer with your can-do attitude, your consideration of the other drivers, your promptness at showing up on time, looking sharp and ready to go, I mean, be really good at what you're doing, even if it's not your dream, if it's not your passion. Be really good there. It'll open the door for their opportunities. My own grandson has been living with us for five months here. And because of a just a, well, it wasn't random, nothing's random, but we were having a dinner at a local restaurant. We know the manager there. This was right after he moved here. And we mentioned that he was looking for a job and she said, why don't you come see me tomorrow at three o'clock? And when he showed up, she had a shirt already embroidered with his name on it. So he's been working there. Now, this wasn't his dream job, but in retrospect, as he looks back over the four months that he's been there, he's like, wow, the connections that he made have been phenomenal. The friendships that he made have been phenomenal. The opportunity to shine and be a leader in that environment has been phenomenal. I mean, there's a lot of benefits to be an excellent at what you're doing right now, even if it isn't, even if you know you're moving to something else. All right. Well, I mean, I need to wrap up here and move on. Uh, your last question was, should I wait until I'm out of debt before investing and starting a business? Again, a question that we get asked a lot. Love the question. Last week, I talked about Amazon workers are being offered a $10,000 bonus to quit their jobs and start their own delivery service. I mean, what a, what a cool transition to do that. You know, should you wait until you're out of debt before starting? Probably not. 
I mean, I don't know how much debt you've got, but if it's going to take you five years to pay it off, my goodness, what could you do if you started a business today? Now, that being said, there's a lot of businesses that require virtually no money startup at all. And last week I talked about Chris Gilbo's new book, you know, 100 Side Hustles and all some of the really cool, innovative ideas that people are doing to start a business that then ends up being very profitable. You can have an idea, just kind of the core of the idea, put it out there on Kickstarter or Indiegogo and get people who believe in your idea, who give you the startup funds to get going. I mean, there are other examples. I mean, UPS has a owner driver program, program where if you understand the delivery business and have an affinity for doing that, you can start today. Now they'll finance the truck for you. So you may have a $375 a month payment for that. And let's say that it's a $12,000 truck investment overall. Would I recommend that you wait until you save up $12,000? Not in that case. If you're an, a candidate for that, I'd recommend you go out this afternoon and start that because that investment, meaning that you get involved in that business, can give you an immediate payback on that. I mean, that's, that, that's not an unreasonable thing to do at all. So the situation has to be determined based on your unique needs, what you want to do, but not necessarily. I mean, sometimes getting out of debt I mean, sometimes I see people on a 20-year plan. I think, my goodness, your earning years are going to be behind you. And if you can double your income by being in business for yourself, why wouldn't you do that to accelerate your debt reduction rather than waiting till it's all gone so you can essentially start on a clean slate? Well, here's a question about liability insurance. We, we seem to have some of these popping up, but I'll address this one quickly here. Brenda says, do you think I should make changes or just get liability insurance? I'm writing a book about Dr. Atkins' first book, Dr. Atkins' Diet Revolution from 1972. So my book is basically a simpler version of his book in my own words. I write about how did this or that and explain what Dr. Atkins said about it. I include very few direct quotes from the original book and encourage my readers to purchase the original book. My question is, how much of this is considered copyright infringement? If I include Atkins in the title, making it clear that I'm the author, not him, would that be allowed? You know, something like, uh, well, new Atkins for a new year, my title. I, I guess uh, Dr. Atkins apparently wrote a book, new Atkins for a new year. And Brenda's saying my title is old Atkins for a better you. I will not use any of Atkins nutritional logans or slogans. Well, I think you're on thin ice here. I mean, it's the kind of thing that I would never wade into because it's just can be complicated. However, in doing just a quick look, there are tons of books that are written out there that use the Atkins method in their title. Atkins, eat right, not less. Atkins diet for beginners. The complete Atkins deal my diet meal plan. I mean, so there's a lot of things out there, losing weight with Atkins diet plan. A lot of people are doing that. You know, when something is that generally known in the public domain, so to speak, you can certainly reference it. Now, copyright addresses specific words, a look, you know, so you can't go in and have a page verbatim out of his original book in years. That is copyright infringement. A good rule of thumb of that is if you have something that's less than 250 words, then you just 
give attribution. You just say where it came from. You can do that. You look at any of the books I've written, they're full of quotations. And I just simply say, who said it? I don't go ask for permission from Abraham Lincoln or whoever it happens to be. I just put it in there and you can do that. If you go over 250 words, then you really need to get permission from the original publisher. It's not even the author, but the original publisher. And that would be a problem. So if you have any significant content that you're taking verbatim out of the original book, yeah, don't do that. That'll get you in trouble big time. And believe me, there will be people watching this kind of thing to see how much content you pull. But if it really is all in your words, you just reference the the concepts. Now, here, here's the thing. Copyrights, I mean, the, the content will be copywritten no matter what. I mean, you don't need to file for an original copyright. If you write a blog, it's copyrighted instantly. Somebody cannot copy that word for word. That happens a lot, but it is copyright infringement. But copyrights do not protect ideas, procedures, processes, systems, methods of operation, concept, principles, or discovery. They represent a printed word in this case. So, Can you use the concept? Sure. Can you use a procedure? Sure. A system? Sure. Method of operation? Sure. You can use all that as long as you really do put it into your words and you're going to be okay. Now, a couple quick things. There is professional liability insurance for writing and publishing. I've never gotten it because I don't go that close to borrowing somebody else's content. Never have and won't do that. But you can get that if you feel like you're using a significant amount of content, and you're just kind of rewording it a little bit, then it may be a good idea for you to check out professional liability insurance for writing and publishing. Now, here's an example. I have a friend here in Franklin uh, who has just written a new book. It's, it won't be out until October, but it's it's written, it's finished, it's beautifully done. It's called the Bezos Letters. Now, this is, and the photo on the front looks like the back of Jeff Bezos' head. Jeff Bezos, of course, being the founder of Amazon. Now, what Steve did was take the publicly available letters from the last 14 years that Jeff Bezos has written to his shareholders, and he's extracted from those letters the business principles. Now, again, not taken word for word, but just saying, wow, this looks like this kind of a business principle, and that probably contributed to the success that Amazon has experienced. That's exciting and totally doable. You know, they're doing that. They're having bidding wars on foreign rights for the book this far in advance of it being published, some really exciting things. And he's getting credibility, instant credibility and name recognition because he is using Bezos in the name. So it's it's a dicey kind of thing. Yeah, you might want to check with somebody else, you know, more proficient in the legal aspects of this. I think you're on thin ice, but I think it can be done. All right, Renee says, in researching your resources, I did not find a resource, a personality test that identifies which personality types match best in marital relationships. Is that included in any of the 48 days assessment disc profiles? I'm about to work through. I believe this type of test may save many marriages from divorce and many couples from choosing to marry into a marriage between two very incompatible people. I realize that with God's grace, marital counseling, and sheer commitment on both parties, they can avoid failed marriages 
However, this tool could be super valuable in the process of finding a mate. Golly, great question. You know, and I have to ask, I'll have to ask Ashley, my daughter. She's really our DISC expert. She works with major organizations like the John Maxwell Organization and State Farm in understanding this. I'm sure she's got some information. I apologize about not getting that in advance here. I'll add something to our notes when I find that. So, but we've done a lot of work with couples. Here's the deal. We have the four major categories that the DISC identifies. D-I-S-C, dominant, influencing, steadiness, compliance. What is a perfect match? There is none. Trust me, Renee. You don't have to worry about there being a perfect match where you're not going to have any challenges in marriage or a match that will absolutely not work. Now, we believe in the DISC. Joanna and I had the potential spouses for our children take the disc very early on in the dating relationships. And we talked with them very openly about the potential challenges that they might experience. That's easy to lay out. Now, if I back up a little bit more, Joanna and I met, she was 17, I was 18. We didn't have a clue about personality styles. All we knew is we were in love. We didn't have any marriage counseling. We had nobody. And, and trust me, if somebody had given us marriage counseling, chances are about 100%, they would have said, this is never going to work. I came from a really conservative Mennonite farm upbringing. Joanne came from a totally unchurched home. She did all the things that the religion I was in said you couldn't do if you wanted to avoid hell. I mean, we were so opposite. It was unbelievable. She grew up in a city. I grew up in a country. I mean, I could go on. We were opposite in every way. Hey, guess what? We got married anyway. It's been amazing. Now, as time has gone by, we've taken the disc profile the Myers-Briggs, the Enneagram, the Colby. I mean, all of those. We love those things. Strength finders, we love all of those. And they give us continuing information about how we operate uniquely. But now here's the thing. As I immersed myself in the study of psychology and understanding personalities, I recognized I don't want Joanne to be a clone of me. I don't want her to be just like me. I love the fact that she's so different in so many ways. It's taught me tons as the reverse has been true as well. We're very, very different. Now, could we have survived if we were more alike? Sure. I don't think there would have been a problem if we would have, if it would have turned out that we really are very much alike in some areas. So are there combinations that are going to be challenging? Sure. You know, somebody who's a high C tends to be somebody who's going to gather a lot of information, want to make decisions very slowly. Well, here's an example. Joanne is a high S. I'm a high D. She likes to be very careful about decisions. She would be, she would have been content if I would have gotten a job at General Motors, put in my 35 years and gotten a gold watch and retired. I mean, she would have been perfectly fine with that. She was, had never experienced high income. Her mom was on welfare, single mom on welfare. You know, she grew up very little. So just having the, the basics of life would have been perfectly fine for her. Man, here I am, this aggressive, risk-taking entrepreneur, man, bet the farm, 
Geez, feast or famine. I mean, I'm totally fine with that. That scared the fire out of her. We had to work through that. But one of the things too is when confronted with two options, I can make a decision instantly. She likes to take some time. So we gather the facts a little more carefully. So we agreed early in our marriage that we would use two weeks as a time frame to make even major decisions. To me, that's a long time. To her, it's still pretty short. But we agreed on two weeks. So in the two weeks, we can gather information. We can get the uh, advice and opinion of other people. We can do a little bit more research, narrow down to the best two or three choices, then choose one and act. So that's a process we go through, and we agreed on that together. We discuss things. My goodness, again, we, we approach things differently. But we discuss things together and decide what's going to make the most sense for us. Well, and incidentally, I, I, have, I mean, I keep track of the different profiles that I've taken. I mean, on the disc, I'm a high DC. On the Myers-Briggs, I'm an INTJ. On the Enneagram, I'm a five. On the Colby, I'm a 6293. You know, strength finders, I have like achievement, inspiration, you know, at the top. So I keep track of all of those things. I want us to continue to have these ongoing conversations about our differences and how we approach things. You know, how we parent differently, grandparent differently. You know, still, there are things that, God, they're just things that we're, we're very, very different. And again, I think that adds to the richness of our marriage. You know, Billy Graham once said, when asked the secret of his love, being married 54 years at the time to Ruth, he said, Ruth and I are happily incompatible. I love that. Yeah, I mean, I think Joanna and I are have had such an amazing marriage in part because we are so different. Now, do you purposely outline that? No, because people who are going through divorce will say, oh, you know, we're so different. You know, we just grew apart. We're so different. Well, so you can use anything. You know, you could use, gee, we're so much the same. It was just boring. I got bored. You could use anything as an excuse for walking out. I mean, having a, a rich marriage or dating relationship is not just based on the perfect combination of personalities, based on a whole lot of other things like commitment, integrity, and a whole lot of other things that make marriages work. Great question, though. And again, I'll, I'll do some more. I'll, I'll come back with some more specific resources about that, um, Renee, because I do think that's a legitimate question. And I'll dig in to see what we have that addresses it. I mean, we have sales profiles to predict how successful somebody's going to be in sales, what kind of selling they ought to be in. So we have specific reports for a lot of different combinations. And I suspect, actually, that we do have one that has some predictions about marriage as well. All right, Gene says, I'm seeking advice on how to negotiate a higher salary than what was offered. I'd like to continue working there while I develop other opportunities. I'm currently an IT contractor on project for a large university. The offer to work full-time as an employee is about 12.6% more than I make currently and does come with better benefits. I would continue doing the same job I'm currently doing with the same hours. Hmm. All right. The advice I'm seeking is how to negotiate via email for a higher salary than what is initially being offered. There likely won't be a chance of getting a raise before one year is up. I'm also one of the most experienced contractors on the project. I'm often called upon to train new employees and student interns and sometimes fill in for the leads when they're out of the office. All right. Now here's, here's the deal on this, Gene. The timing of asking 
for more is critical. A lot of people get into this negotiating for more too early. And if it's too early, you're going to just blow yourself out of the water and that's the end of the conversation. If it's too, if you've already agreed to work for a year under that, then obviously it's too late. So there has to be some sweet spot in between those two. And it is at that point where you know you want to work here and they know you are the one person on the face of the earth that they would most prefer to have in that position. We have to have you. That's where you have negotiating power. And with that, then when the offer comes in, you can say, okay, I appreciate that. You don't love the the working relationship that I have with you now, but based on my understanding of the responsibilities you're asking for, I would see that in the blank, in the $75,000 category rather than 68. Is that still within your budget? You can do that. Now, the challenge, part of the challenge with your question, the way you framed it, I'm reading between the lines, behind the lines a little bit, in that you're working for a large university. Universities, government systems, they're going to be the most rigid on how they pay for a given position. You go into a a regular for-profit business out here, I mean, anything's negotiable. You can negotiate a $50,000 swing in what they often offered you. And we have stories all the time from people who have done that based on the principles that I lay out in that chapter in 48 Days to the Work You Love. But if you're working for a government organization, an academic institution, they tend to be very rigid and they will pass on a great candidate because they have a mediocre candidate who's willing to work at that rate. So it's it can be frustrating. You know, it's a little frustrating in that arena, but if you choose to work, then the option obviously is if you are an IT contractor, information technology contractor, you can put your services out there to any company. I mean, any company is going to need what you offer. So you could theoretically double or triple what you're making now by simply having different customers. You can always do that. I mean, as an independent contractor anyway, you know, you might be wanting to look for other potential clients that you have that would increase that income rather than being locked in to that traditional kind of overview that universities typically have. All right. Well, you know what? I'm I'm not going to, oh, let's just reflect a little bit. I'm not going to start anything new. We're going to wrap it up right now. We'll save other questions for another day. Again, man, I love these questions coming in. Again, just a reminder, these are real questions from you, the listeners. If you got a question, I'd be delighted to unpack it here as we kind of think through it together for the benefit of everybody listening, you and everybody else listening, just shoot those in to askdan at 48days.com. Again, you can go to any page on the 48 Days website. There's a little microphone there, usually on the bottom right-hand side. You click on that. You can just speak a question as well, but most people choose to just send it to me via email. Again, that's askdan at 48days.com. So back to our original setup. Can I survive with a mission, passion-based business? Wow, I love that question. Love that question. and want to encourage any of you, every single person listening, don't settle for anything less than that. Wow, make that your goal. Make that your goal that 
what you're going to do in business blends your passion, your mission, your call, your purpose. Wow, there's so many things out here. You can individualize it. You can make it personal for you. That's exactly what you want to do. But yes, you can survive. You Not only can you survive, you can thrive. I mean, do you think I'm doing okay? Yeah, I'm doing okay. And the interesting thing is, people refer to my business, 90% of the time, they refer to it as my ministry, which is really interesting. I've never set it up as a nonprofit. We're totally for profit. We do pretty well with the things that we offer people who are wanting to go through these changes. But people still refer to it as ministry because it's so clear that it comes from my heart, comes from my desire to serve. Hey, you can do the same. Thanks for being part of this community where we know we can find or create work that is meaningful, purposeful, and profitable.